Not long ago, the guy who headed the youth group at Covenant Presbyterian Church decided to hold a debate. Half the kids in the youth group had to argue for Christianity. Half the kids had to make the case that Christianity was all made up, a fairy tale. And the Christians lost. And I think the number one reason why is because they tried to just come at it with a lot of facts. Dan Adamson is the youth leader. And it was amazing to watch these, not these, the ones that were debating Christianity said, Jesus is real, there's people that found him, and there's proof on this, and they evidence the Archaeological it. records. Archaeological records. And what was so awesome by the non-Christian debate team is they said, fine, we totally acknowledge that Jesus is real, but so was Muhammad, so was Buddha, so was this. And the Christians were like, yeah, but Jesus is real, and he died on the cross and he rose again. And the non-Christians came out and said, well... There's people that believe that, but there's also people that believe Muhammad was this. And what I wish the Christians would have done would have been said, here am I. I believe God is real because he's changed my life. And put myself on the witness stand and say, here's what I was before God and here's who I am now. The problem is, for the teenagers in this youth group, the phrase, here's who I was before I found God, it has no meaning. They all come from families that discuss the Bible at dinner. They go to church every Sunday. They come from the kind of homes where all the kids can tell you how many swearers are in the movie Titanic, because every TV show and film is pre-screened. I have kids that are willing to serve, kids that know the Bible, kids that know their theology. This is the only truth they've known. They've been told from the very beginning God loves them, God has a plan for them, Jesus is their savior. They've been singing Jesus loves me since they've been five years old. It's time for them to develop their own faith, not just to parrot back what their parents say. Dan says this, most of the parents say it. They need to question what they've learned and come to their own conclusions. If they don't do it now, Dan says, they'll do it later, without parents and a youth pastor to nudge them toward God. So, Dan decided to take them to West Virginia. It will be a mission trip, the youth group's first mission trip. They'd have to help poor people, they'd have to testify about God's word to strangers. It would be hard. And hardship can make you turn to God. And they'd see the kind of things that make people engage serious questions about their faith. If they begin doubting because they look in this world and they see hard lives in West Virginia, they see people that are hurting, and they see this and they look up and they think, why would God allow that to happen? And that's like an example of, I think, where I'd start seeing more growth. So that was the plan. Now, let's meet some of the teenagers. Kelly Hoover is age 14, long brown hair, braces, lip gloss. Kelly's outgoing and bright, and she's somebody capable of saying exactly what is on her mind. Well, I really, I really want to meet the kids there and just, because, I mean, I don't want to sound like snotty or anything, but I'm more privileged than most people. I mean, I live in a big house. I have a pool. And I don't really see kids a lot who don't have as much as I do. And I really just want to, like, see what it's like and, like, how living with them is. And I really just want to teach them about Jesus because, like, I don't know how I could live without him. And sometimes I think how, like, blessed I was to be born in such a family. Welcome to WBEZ Chicago and Public Radio International. It's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Today on our program, A Teenager's Guide to God. The story of five adults, 11 kids, and six days in West Virginia, of adults trying to mold the faith of teenagers, and things not working out quite as planned. It's an odd fact of religious life in America that in this country founded by Christians, in which a majority of people say they believe in God and identify themselves as Christians, 
that so many religious Christians feel that they are an oppressed minority. They say the media doesn't share their values, that secular institutions undermine their beliefs. And the job of raising Christian children, they'll tell you, is like trying to do God's work from behind enemy lines. Today, we are devoting our entire program to the kids that they're struggling to bring up. This American Life producer, Susan Burton, and I spent a week this August recording these teenagers day and night throughout their mission trip. And we bring you this portrait of what it means to be a Christian teenager in America, for some kids anyway, around the turn of the millennium. Stay with us. Act 1, Exodus. The youth group is part of Covenant Presbyterian Church here in Chicago, a city church with lots of members who live out in the suburbs. A number of their parents were founding members of the church less than two decades ago. These teenagers are 13 to 17. They all grew up attending Christian schools or home schools. Our trip began with a 14-hour drive in two rented vans to West Virginia. Can we hear LFO? Ira has never heard it. Yeah. Ira, have you heard the Summer Girls song, Summertime Girls? Oh, it's so funny. So Where's my bag? We were barely in the van 10 minutes when Marisa and Kelly asked Dan to play the song that became the unofficial theme song to our trip. It wasn't by Jars of Clay or DC Talk or any of the other Christian pop bands whose CDs we'd brought. It was a rap song by a white, one-hit wonder boy band called LFO. Everybody spent the ride down trying to memorize the lyrics. Oh, I missed it. I missed the Billy Shakespeare. That's the I wait. Sonnets. Okay, okay, okay. Start it over. I got it. So it's after the Larry Bird. What does he say? What does he say? Dan is 29, married with a new baby. But in the van, he's more like a counselor adored by his campers than youth pastor. The girls strain their necks and try to meet his eyes in the rearview mirror as they talk, asking what he and one of the other leaders, Dave, we like back in college together at the evocatively named Moody Bible Institute, teasing him about the songs he likes, which, as far as they're concerned, are impossibly old, 10, maybe 15 years. He tries just as hard as anybody to learn the words to Summer Girls. I thought Ken was home alone. L- was Alex P. Keaton. What is that from? <laughs> You know, Family Ties, you know, with... Oh, um, I never watched the show. Okay. I did, sometimes. And Mallory, and what was the other girl's name? Yeah. That's too 80s for me, Arden says. I couldn't watch it. These girls are the children that the Christian right has in mind when it holds press conferences on what's at stake in America's culture war. They are cannon fodder in that war. Just a few years before they were born, a child psychologist named Dr. James Dobson founded a group called Focus on the Family, It is an enormous religious organization based in Colorado Springs. Dobson's genius is that he offers exhaustive, concrete advice on everything from child discipline to movie going to a generation of parents who are trying to raise their kids in a new way, or rather, in a very old way. As part of that, Dobson has built an entire superstructure to shield young people from Hollywood, from rap music, from the WB. Focus on the Family publishes an ongoing encyclopedic guide which evaluates pop culture from a Christian perspective for parents. In addition, they've created an empire of Christian pop of their own, original radio dramas and children's videos, books, websites, and several magazines. It is a remarkably effective social experiment. These teenagers don't even fight with their parents about what they can watch and listen to. At this point, they generally agree that certain films and shows are bad for them. 
And if you ask them about any of the TV shows targeted at and beloved by so many of their 14- and 15-year-old peers, Dawson's, Buffy, Felicity, you can hear their parents' voices and Dr. Dobson's voice in their replies. You feel really guilty walking away that you just like totally perverted your mind with all this stuff. It's so unrealistic and sick. The fact that a boy is sleeping with his teacher who's like 15 years old. I mean, and these people are supposed to be 15 and 16 years old. And if that was how my life was, I would be dead right now because it's just ridiculous. Everybody with, is jumping in bed with everyone else and it's all switching. I mean, by the, by the middle of the series, I was hearing through rumors that so-and-so who had been with the teacher was now with this girl who was actually on depressants. I mean, like, I have no idea what's going on. It's Andy, one of the supposed non-viewers, pipes up from the back. What's so interesting about these girls is the odd mix of Christian and secular pop in their lives. Despite the Christian schools, despite their carefully monitored TV viewing, they do not seem out of touch. They're not unhip. And here is the most important thing that they would want you to know about them. They like being Christians. This is Lauren. People understand that we really enjoy this religion. That us as teenagers who are the ones who are out to have fun and whatever, that this is actually something that means something to us and that we are having fun doing this. As they've gotten older, some of them have taken more steps, carefully measured steps, into the secular world. Ruth and Jessica and Anna go to a public high school. And it isn't the kids at the school are hostile to Christianity, as they were, Dan says, when he was a teenager. These days, the attitude at the school is, if Christianity is your thing, that's fine, just so long as you don't push it onto other people. Of all the teenagers in the youth group, the one struggling the most with how to live as a religious person in the secular world is one of the two boys on the trip, Joel. I've had my share of dealings with kids that have been to public school, and I just don't really like what I see. Joel's 13, and probably the most sheltered person in the group. His mother's always homeschooled him because he says... She feels that Christian schools only teach Christian values during Bible class. She feels it should be enunciated in all the subjects. But Joel's getting out more and more. Just this summer, he spent three weeks away from home for the first time in his life. And it was with non-Christian kids on a soccer trip to England. I don't know. I mean, I learned a lot of stories and jokes and stuff, but they were all really nasty and unrepeatable. It gives you an idea of, you know, what kids learn in public schools. And it's like, the boys are always like, you know, talking about sex or things that have to do with sex. And, you know, I mean, at this age, yeah, I'm starting to think about that, but still, I mean, I don't like, you know, like talking about it. A typical joke, the only one that I could drag out of him, involved a boy, a girl having her period, a car late at night, a policeman, and a pizza. Believe me, you don't want to know. It was just... Incredible. I mean, they were... It was just, they were the most... And they didn't, you know... But... He is literally at a loss for words. And then some of the guys, they just got a kick out of acting like they were, like, gay or something. On the bus ride, they found out that that annoyed me, so they did that the rest of the trip. Acting like... They were, like, after me, if you know what I mean. They would, like, say stuff in, like, kind of an exaggerated effeminate kind of accent there was one guy who would like always wink at me I'm like Matt knock it off and he's like oh come on you know you want it and I'm like no I don't <laughs> up until this point you've been homeschooled you haven't been around other kids and so was this literally the first time this had happened to you 
Yes. Yes. Compared with all the other kids on the trip, Joel's family is much more fundamentalist in the way that it incorporates the Bible into their daily lives. Whatever benefits he gets from that, the kids whose parents try to balance secular and Christian influences all seem way more at ease in themselves than in the world. For the rest of the drive, the girls sing the LFO song every few hours. They ruffle through the pages of teen people, read stories out loud to each other, close the magazine in their laps, flip it over, and begin again. By the time we arrive in West Virginia, this is their first accomplishment of the trip. Nearly everybody has memorized all the words. New kids on the block had a bunch of hits. Chinese food makes me sick. I think it's fly when girls stop by for the summer. These are the vessels that God has chosen to come here to help others. Act two, onto the uttermost part of the earth. Everybody stays at an old 4-H camp that had been taken over by the Presbyterian Church of America's National Missionary Organization, Mission to the World. Kids and adults from all over the country filled the various cabins. Prayers were held in the campfire circle. It was green, shady, spectacularly pretty, with daily sermons from a tattooed ex-Marine. Everybody called Pastor Kenny. We've had people come up here for, this is our sixth summer. Uh, And every year someone comes with the idea that we're going to win West Virginia over to Jesus this week. I'm serious. Now this is true. I'm here to tell you that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. But if you will open your heart to God this week, God will change your life. And you will never be the same. Right now there's a boom in church projects like this one that send people on one to two week mission trips. This boom crosses all denominations. There are no great national estimates. But in this one Presbyterian denomination, not the biggest one, the number of short-term missionaries has more than doubled in just three years. Now it's over 5,000 souls. 750 of them came through this West Virginia summer camp this year, and the number is still climbing. And so, among certain groups of Christian teenagers, going on a missions trip has become a rite of passage. There are upbeat articles and ads in the Christian teen magazines. One of the Chicago girls, Anna, says that of the 11 girls in her class at her old school, a small Christian junior high, all 11 went on mission trips this summer. And when they got to where they were going, they often got a jolt of culture shock. Our group found itself in a small town, fixing up a house that had a beautiful sloping yard, apple trees, two porches. Sure, there were trailer homes up the street, but this house was, all in all, not what the kids thought of when they signed up to help the unfortunate. One girl said that she had envisioned something more like Cabrini Green, the high-rise Chicago public housing project. Kelly, the one whose family has a pool, put it this way. Um, I didn't picture, I mean, this house is a lot bigger than I thought it'd be. I thought it'd be like a rundown little shack. I mean, I didn't picture, like, <laughs> like rat clothes, you know. <laughs> rat clothes, did you say? I don't know what, like, I don't know, dirt poor, but, I mean, but it's nice. I mean, it definitely needs some painting work, but, you know. You might think it would be awkward for the recipients of this charity work. If nothing else, to have all the neighbors see a team of out-of-state church kids working on their house. But as it turned out, 
The neighbors saw the kids and thought that perhaps they were from some kind of work-release boot camp kind of program, like they saw on NBC Dateline, they told us. My dad, not my family, my husband's family, all worked at coal mine. <laughs> Pebble Cunningham is 80 years old. She lives in the house that the Chicago group was painting, along with her daughter, who's in her 50s, and her granddaughter, Angie. I would expect for, for, for somebody like you, whose family's always worked, is it strange to have these people come in and help you out like this? Oh, uh, it's strange, but it's nice. Because we have no manpower at all. We ain't got no men to help us. This house was going down fast. But I would think that because oh, you've always been a working family, like yeah. the notion of having people come in and help out and do charity. First time. First time. Yeah. But we loved it. <laughs> because we needed it, you know. Now, were you worried having uh, having all these Bible kids come to you yeah. that they'll be trying to preach to you the whole time? No, no I'll never talk about it. I don't think you have to look forward to Jesus. I don't think you have to look forward to. Act 3. Wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Back in Chicago, Dan had said that part of what would bring everybody on the trip closer to God was facing hardship together. And, as if on schedule, the difficulties began our first morning. Give me yellow hair. Let's no, give me which one you Give me blue hair. You gotta give me like, like blue you gotta give me scully hair. The girls sit on the porch of their cabin, bent in concentration with crayons and paper, trying a get well card for Dan with everybody on it. They also gave him Gatorade. Dan's probably gonna have to go to the hospital and yeah, he's really sick. He's like vomiting, barfing, vomiting violently. Just do it. Maybe the Gatorade will work miracles. Miracles could happen. That's like in our devotion. Dan has some sort of food poisoning. When he goes into the hospital, it sends the four adult leaders on the trip lurching into a dispute over what to do next. And some of Dan's best laid plans begin to go awry. Take the vacation Bible school. The original plan for the week was that every morning for a few hours, the kids would split into two different groups. Half would work on painting the Cunningham's house. Half would work on what they call a VBS, which is church speak for vacation Bible school which itself is church speak for trying to bring the word of God to local kids with games, skits, candy, a brief lesson. What do we say? We say we're doing a club. We're a, group, we're a youth group from Chicago. Anna and Lauren practice what they'll say to round up kids. Um, if you have any kids, should we ask if they have any kids or just say if you have any kids, um, if you're interested, free to have them come. Yeah. But the group got bad advice about where to hold the vacation Bible school. We set up about a 10-minute drive from the Cunningham's house in a big, empty public park. And as we went knocking from door to door to advertise the event to kids, it was like a fairy tale, where at each house, the person at the door was slightly more infirm, slightly more elderly than the person at the house before. I don't have any children, I don't have any grandchildren here, and I don't know anybody close that has kids. Okay, thank you. Hi, we were wondering if you had any kids that wanted to come to the Backyard Bible Club at Worthington Park. Do you have any kids? Do you have any? Do you any? Do you have any children? And the next day, when we went out to hold the vacation Bible school, with props and costumes and games, with a pre-rehearsed skit and more candy than you might imagine, Karen, Marie, Jessica, Nora, Laura, Kelly, and Arden sat on the edge of an outdoor stage in the park, waiting. Nobody showed up. The closest they came was when a white pickup turned into the parking area. Look at oh, child. Oh, child. Is that a child. 
looks like it could no, be a family vehicle. One child. Oh, please. Maybe they have seven kids. They didn't have seven, or even one. Oh, well. So are we gonna come back every day if nobody comes? This is gonna be like three hours of wasted time every day. Two. Two hours. One of the group leaders, Nora, gathers them around. You know, I think that anyone who is um, led to pray should pray. Uh, Chris, can you start us off? And then Laura, can you just finish? Thanks. All right. They bow their heads. Here's one of the advantages of Christian life over secular life, that at any moment of trouble, when somebody might get frustrated or mad, or for that matter, at any turning point in the day, when one thing ends and another's about to begin, our group takes a quiet moment and reflects. Dear Lord, we came here today and we were really hoping that we'd be able to, like, teach some kids about God, but it didn't work out that way. And maybe you're just showing us that it's better to go back to the house and work with the family there. Well, please show us some more signs. Dear Lord, um, I just thank you so much for this day, and that was nice. And um, I just, uh, I just pray that we won't be discouraged, that no kids will come, and that maybe, well, you said that everything... Um, is worked for the good and maybe we needed more time on the house lord and i just pray that whatever happens that good things will come out of this and we'll all do it for your glory talking with the kids afterwards i found that the lesson that they took from this experience was not that they could have chosen a better location or done a better job finding kids it was not that they could have tried harder what they all told me simply was was that this was God's will. It's a lesson that seems, to a secular person, strangely at odds with the job of raising children. It seems, in fact, to be exactly the opposite of what you would want to teach a child. Raising kids is, after all, a process of convincing them that they have to be responsible, that if something goes wrong, they have to figure out if there was anything they could have done to prevent it. I talked to Dan about this. I talked to the other adult leaders about it. And finally, the only person on the trip who says anything convincing about why this notion of God's will might be a good thing to teach teenagers is Ruth, the oldest girl in the youth group. That helps me through the day because you see kids who don't care at all, you know, about Jesus and all of that. And, and they seem to be doing just fine. They seem to be doing a lot better. So because I'm in this really competitive program and a lot of the kids are not Christians and, you know, a lot of kids do really well. One of my classmates I think scored a perfect on the ACT and I didn't and I wasn't I mean I wasn't very close and um, I may take it over I may not um, point is that um, I don't know they seem to be doing better and sometimes I think you know boy I wish that I could do that well and I guess it wasn't God's plan for me to do that well it just seems like um, just knowing that it's you know it's not all under our control and that Maybe, you know, God does have a plan, so whatever he chooses, though I may not like it, and I certainly don't like, you know, not coming out on top or not being the best. Act 4. Your name is ointment poured forth. One great thing about staying in a camp with 130 other Christians if you're a young Christian girl who has never had a boyfriend, is the much better than in-school chance of meeting a nice, cute Christian boy. Though, of course, camp rules prohibit anything more than having a crush from afar. 
This turns out not to cramp the style of the Chicago girls, however. Crush from afar is exactly as far as they could handle. Monday night, after services and after devotions, everybody is milling around the volleyball court in the center of camp. There are boys and girls there, and one of the adult leaders, Nora, comes down carrying a word game for everybody to play. A word game. What could be more embarrassing? First, Nora comes out. She's like, anyone up for a game of volleyball? She comes marching down. This kid starts staring at her. And now everyone at our table just starts laughing. Kelly, who cheerfully describes herself as the most boy-crazy of the group, explains that it was Anna, who just didn't care what anyone thought, who spoke up to say that she liked Boggle, which turned out to be a masterstroke. And so then we end up starting playing this Boggle game, and, you know, other people come by, like, two guys like they're from Virginia. Virginia. <laughs> Bran! Barn. First let's start with Lauren and Ruthie. They like Jimbo. I mean, he's too old, but he's really cute. Then there is Andy, who Jessica and Anna think is cute. And then there's Ben, who's really, everyone thinks he's cute, but not, but they all have their first choice. But he looks like, Jessica thinks he looks like an Abercrombie model. He, he does. All right, yes, I am extremely ticklish. Thank you for reminding me. <laughs> During the game, a girl came over and started rubbing Ben's shoulders. His little massage girlfriend came over. And massaging it. He's like, you know what? Stop. Didn't he get a little aggravated? Well, he did get a little aggravated. Did you guys make eye contact or talk? Yes, we did. He first, it was eye contact. Hey, she asked me. And so first we were like, we were playing bio. You know how to play and like you find the words. And I was like, oh, I found a word. He's like, I already found that word. I was like, oh, I'm sorry. And so then at the end of the game, he was telling me how he really stunk at the game. And that was basically it. Not very romantic, Kelly admits. But after that, every night after their missionary work, the Chicago girls shower, apply lip gloss, and blow dry their hair straight so they're ready for the volleyball court after devotions. Joel, who has the most protective parents of anybody in the group, is not indulging any crushy feelings very far on this trip. At this point, I'm kind of, you know, laying off because my parents... They're kind of strict on this kind of issue. So, like, you're not allowed to date until we're dead. Seriously, I'm not allowed to date anybody until they're dead. Until they're dead? Until they're dead. That is not the rule. That is, too. I'm not allowed to date. This, they got, they're into this, new, this, this courtship idea where the families, you know, the fa- both the families, you know, get together. And then the two people get to know each other in the family setting. But, you know, not, like, going out by ourselves, you know. Where our parents can't keep track of us. I mean, we can like sit and talk, you know, like with our parents, you know, across the room or whatever. And it starts getting kind of farther and farther away until you know, as we get older and more responsible, more mature, then, you know, it starts getting a little more one on one. You know, as we get more responsible, then it's, you know, going out, it's like dinner and stuff. Joel says that he's going through a period of questioning his faith right now. And the most emotionally charged questions that he's asking have to do with sex the outright ban on premarital sex. What is a 13-year-old boy supposed to think? Joel says that he's planning on reading all the biblical references on it so he can understand the reasoning, and so he can see for himself if there's any wiggle room in the whole thing. He borrows his mom's theological books on hard subjects like this. When producer Susan Burton asks him if he has a Bible verse that's a particular favorite, he pulls a scrap of paper from his wallet. I, I have it written down. I always keep it with me. My mom gave it to me, actually. 
so this is a this is a it's a little piece of paper cut yeah. out in a circle is that your writing uh, this is my mom's writing she wrote it down for me second timothy 2:22. flee also youthful lusts but pursue righteousness faith love peace with those who call on the lord out of a pure heart which you know basically is means you know for me stay away from you know what what i want to do at this time There's sometime early in the week that Susan and I met Matt Gerkins and Eric Highland. They saw us standing with our Chicago interviewees, holding our tape recorders and boom mics, and strolled right up. We're gonna. We're thinking we heard something in the woods there last night. We're gonna go. We're investigating it. This is just weeks after the movie Blair Witch Project hit theaters. Matt is 18, Eric's 23, and it becomes clear after some questioning that in fact they have no intention of going into the woods. They just said that trying to get on the radio. So what really gets on the radio? Do you have to do something like dramatic to get on the radio, or you want real life? Ah. We explained that we're doing a documentary story, which means, we tell him, that he'd have a better chance of getting on the air if he goes through some sort of change over the course of his week of missionary work. So if we can find something that would like really change our lives, and we wanted to document it and broadcast it across the nation, we'd call you guys and we'd like... If something happens to you this week that changes your life, you find me and you'll be on the radio. Really? Wow. So you know what we need to do is just check in with you every half hour, let you know how we're progressing and how things are happening with us. Change is bad. What's the name of this show? Change? What's with this change talk? If we want to change... After that, as you'd expect, we ran into them every single day. And every single day, they had so much to say to us about all the changes they were going through. Coming up, how even M&Ms and Starburst can serve the Lord. In a minute, from Public Radio International, when our program continues. American Life, Myra Glass. Most weeks on our program, of course, we choose a theme, bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. Today, we are devoting our entire show to just one story about a group of suburban Chicago teenagers on their first church mission trip to West Virginia to fix up the house of a family who needs some help and to witness for God. We have arrived at Act 5 of our show, Act 5, The Substance of Things Hoped For. By Tuesday, Dan's feeling better. 
and one of the first things he does at the work site is drop in on the neighbors. I'm Dan. What was your name again? Crystal. Crystal? What? And Paula. Paula. And this is Marisa. Hi. You know, we when Dan came out during the winter to see the house that they would be fixing up, he met these teenage girls. Back then, one of them, Crystal, said the month that Dan was bringing the group out was going to be the same month as her birthday. And Dan came back prepared. Well, are we going to celebrate the birthday? You said we were, we were going to celebrate when we came here. His accent migrates below the Mason-Dixon, as he explains. And we actually have a little present for you. Because we knew it was going to be your birthday, so one of the girls went out and got a, a little present for you. So... Well, if you guys ever get bored or want to come over there, there's a bunch of people who are going to be here all week. We'd okay. love to talk to you. we got some uh, candy and stuff. And then introduce yourself to them. And if you want to come by, we're going to be eating lunch. What time do we eat lunch at? Like 12. 12. You guys we got to eat, eat with us. we got some candy okay. and food and yeah. drinks. You guys gonna be Back next door, everybody works on the Cunningham's house, scraping off the old paint, rolling on the new, trimming back bushes, climbing up ladders. Everybody dressed in surgical scrubs, those blue-green cotton pajamas that you see the doctors wear on ER. That is if your faith allows you to watch ER. They're light, they're disposable, and they let you call each other doctor all day long. The work goes quickly. At some point, to dislodge some ancient paint off aluminum siding, the adults drag in an industrial power washer that they warn the kids about so frighteningly, some get sort of spooked. I don't know. I'm afraid to use the power hose thing because I feel like I'm going to kill somebody. And I mean, seriously, kill somebody. Lindsay stands in line deciding if she'd take a turn. I don't want to see it. <laughs> Once a power washer gets going, Ruth is the first one to use it to actually remove paint. It's fun, yeah. I don't, I'm the oldest, so I like the power. Among an earlier generation of Christian women, or among more fundamentalist Christian women, there might be some question about whether it is a woman's place to run the power tools in the family. This question is so irrelevant to these Presbyterian teenagers that when I bring it up, they literally do not know what I'm talking about. While they all work on the house, every now and then, somebody from the Cunningham family is spotted. And every single time, it is like the experience that you have when you spot a minor celebrity. Your heart leaps, it's all you can think about. And then, if you're brave enough to stroll over and chat, you try to play it casual. Like, oh, we're just talking here. I'm relaxed. It's just like talking to anybody. After all, they are here to minister to this family. When the Cunningham's daughter Angie comes out on the porch one afternoon, Kelly and Jessica do their best to be friendly. And for once... Kelly's mother might feel like she did the right thing, buying her daughter all those Backstreet Boys CDs. Because now they get the chance to talk Backstreet Boys on the Lord's behalf. Paula and Crystal, the girls from next door, bring over a Backstreet Boys poster. Angie owns a t-shirt from the 98 tour. Angie's actually in her late 20s. She has a small disability in one of her arms. It's shorter than the other, and her hand on that arm isn't fully functional. Most days she stays at home watching TV. It is inherently difficult for these Chicago teenagers to figure out how to interact with, even how to react to, somebody from such a different background. And there's a certain amount of raw confusion as they feel their way forward. Every night back at camp, after prayers and devotionals, they all debrief about the day. So, anyone have any thoughts about today? Positive, negative, feedback, anything? Kelly uses the chance to speak up. Um, I thought, you know, at first it was kind of hard to talk to Angie. Mm -hmm. Just because, I mean, I didn't like stirring. I mean, I didn't want to. And it's not just because of her 
it's just because it's hard to understand her. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, she didn't really get what you said sometimes. But, and at first I was kind of doing it out of pity for her. Mm -hmm. And then that didn't feel right, you know. I didn't want to do it out of pity for her. And I don't know if it's wrong or right to do it out of pity for her. But that's how I'm doing it. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know if that's right. And I just, and it makes me so happy when I see her smile. Mm -hmm. And it's just, I guess, I don't know if it's right or wrong to do it out of pity. I know I keep asking that. So someone answer. Nobody does for a while. Until later, when Dan says the perfect thing. That when Jesus walked the earth, he didn't feel pity for the sick and handicapped. He felt compassion. Empathy. Lauren offers this optimistic thought. She obviously has like a lot of problems with her deformity and whatever. Mm-hmm. And you know, I was just thinking in heaven, she's not going to have any deformity. And mm-hmm. if we can reach her that way, just, you know. Sure. Just over and over, Dan tells the group that their main purpose in coming to West Virginia is to minister to the family whose house they're working on. Getting to know Angie is important, he says. Remember the names. I know I need it. I kept telling Carol, Carol, what were their names again? Really, they love that they're going to know their names. I thought it was great. You guys, they're showing your boy bands. I thought that was great. I thought that was great, you know. And um, they say they go to that church. I asked them if they have youth group events, and they said they've done a couple youth group events. So I think, you know, if if the timing's right, I think you you have a, a good opportunity to just ask them, well, you know, what do you think about God? Or what? I mean, I don't think it would be awkward at all. I just, I just think I would encourage you and be praying about it, that if you feel like the, the motivation is there right, man, just plant a seed. Just see what happens. And maybe you're going to go with it. Listening to all this, I imagine how disturbed Angie and Crystal and Paula might be if they overheard all the scheming about how they'll be befriended. From their point of view, after all, their interaction with the Chicago girls is as simple as they seem sort of cool. They like them. But missionary work is, at some level, like any sales work. There's no way to do it without discussing some sort of sales strategy. All of these evening sessions end with prayer, in which anybody who wants to say something simply speaks up. And a lot of the prayers are about Angie and the two neighbors, Crystal and Paula. Kelly was among those offering a prayer. I just pray that tomorrow we'd really get to talk to Mrs. Cunningham and um, Angela and just really, really be a witness for you, Lord. I especially pray for Angela and just help us to ask the right questions and to think of things to say and talk about with her and to find out exactly what makes her tick inside and what makes her special. I pray for um, Angela that she'll just really get to know us, that um, that we, we won't be like every other group and that we'll just really, really get to know her as a really good friend. And from there, everybody headed to the volleyball court where, I am sorry to report, the Chicagoans lost. Lauren's second serve went straight to the guy she sort of had a crush on, and he spiked it like he didn't even know she existed. Come on, Lindsay! Susan, meanwhile, is watching the volleyball game from the sidelines when those two guys, Matt and Eric, who want to be on the radio, show right up. All right, the game is getting very exciting at this point. Yeah, why don't you guys narrate the rest of the game for me, okay? All right. Okay. It has been a oh, very tense competition. Oh, that was a beautiful bump. So, uh, uh, ball returned to the Chicago team. Oh. And Chicago returns with a bunt over the net. It is returned, and it is all. Chicago has done it. Oh, oh. I love my side. <laughs> Afterwards, naturally, they insist that, guess what? This has changed them. This game just now has made us 
appreciate I'm volleyball become, even less I'm gonna go to than the Olympics before. on the American <laughs> volleyball team. I'm going to be the official <laughs> spike. <laughs> the evening ended the way every other evening did on the trip. In the cabin, the Chicago crew sang a doxology and then one other song. When I say I the Backstreet Boys, tell me why. Act 6, The Evidence of Things Not Seen. Well, if any of your buddies live around here that didn't get candy, you let us know, and we'll get them some. This is Dan trying to attract kids to vacation Bible school literally by walking down the street and passing out handfuls of candy, you guys just been hanging out? which turns out to be surprisingly effective. Is this your brother? You got some candy too, Christopher? Excellent. The idea is, give up on that first location where nobody showed up for Bible school. Just do it around the corner from the house they're painting. And what clinched the whole deal, the two teenage girls from next door, Crystal and Paula, took Dan and the Chicago kids from door to door, rounding up prospects. In all, about a dozen kids showed up Thursday morning for games, t-shirt painting, and a lesson from the Bible presented in the form of a skit. So let's everyone close their eyes we're going to pray. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for everyone that made it here today. And I pray that we could have a fun time now. We can learn through your skit. And then we could also um, enjoy doing our craft and playing some more games and having a snack. In your precious name, amen. Now, with no further ado, the one The whole Bible school turns out to be really fun for the West Virginia kids and the Chicago ones, too. The games go over great. The crafts absorb everybody. Some of the kids clearly have hard lives and are excited at all the attention they're getting. The only thing lacking is non-believers. Nearly all the kids say they go to church. When it comes time to make beaded faith bracelets, they already know what all the beads stand for. During Dan's homily, most of the kids know the Bible stories he tells. You guys know the story about the Red Sea, though, right? Yeah. Well, here's yeah. a good story about the Red it. Sea. Right. He just tapped the water and it was... Right. Tapped the water and what happened? It split. Later, Carol and Marisa are kneeling do? in the grass, doing Bible study, when Angie and Crystal just walk right up to them. This is pretty much a situation that any missionary would regard as ideal. And having no choice, as if a greater plan is in fact at work, the Chicagoans get down to the hardcore work of talking about religion. Crystal goes home to get her Bible. One of the adult leaders, Carol, does most of the talking, with Jessica and Kelly and Marisa piping in from time to time. Does Paula have a Bible, too? Yeah. She reads? Yeah. So that's interesting that your school gave you a Bible. Is it like a, re- a religious school? Your school did it, too? Is it a religious school? Do they talk about God at school? No. No? <laughs> they just gave you a Bible? This is kind of cool. Yeah, like if any of the public schools give us battle in Chicago, I'm in trouble because they're yeah. like, they're not Yeah. During breaks, all the girls chat happily with the neighborhood kids. And later, back at camp, Dad congratulated them all. You guys did so well today. I'm so proud of you of how you guys were. All of you just seemed to really, when you saw them, you were very friendly with Paula Crystal and with um, Angie. Thank you so much. And let's let's keep that up tomorrow. This is a great. I mean, I'm I I would say that of all the people, including all the VBS kids that we've had, the most seeds that we have been planting have been with those three girls. It had been Dan's hope that on this trip, the group's faith would deepen, that they would make a step toward having a faith that was independent of what their parents taught them. This would partly happen through service, by helping others, and partly by being forced to articulate their faith to others. And it would happen by facing hardship on the trip, 
and turning to God to help with the difficulties. But the fact is, the hardships on the trip turned out to be not very hard at all, and most of them only had to articulate their faith to six-year-olds who'd mostly already accepted Jesus into their hearts. This was not enough to launch a round of soul-searching and prayer. Instead, what happened was that the kids who didn't doubt their faith at home didn't doubt it here either. And the kids who had all sorts of questions at home continued to nod those questions on the mission trip. The teenager with the most doubts was Arden, who mostly kept her doubts to herself. Which is really, it's, it's frustrating. It makes it hard, you know, to, to be wanting to be part of the group and, and being part of the group and yet knowing that in some way you're not part of the group because you question what the group is about. Arden holds a special symbolic place in her church. She was the first baby born to the young congregation 15 years ago. Whenever the kids in church formed their own ad hoc church youth groups, Arden was always president. But about a year ago, even this carefully raised girl started to grapple with doubt. And her doubt began not because of something she saw on television, not because of peer pressure from attractive, cigarette-smoking, alcohol-drinking, pornographic website-using fans of the South Park movie. No, her doubts began at church camp. She was there for six weeks in a program called Discipleship Training, which sent her and five girls that she'd never met before into the woods for two weeks of camping and hiking and canoeing together. And we were really tight. I mean, we just, we did everything together. We prayed and we would sing songs together at night. And when we get lost, I mean, the first thing we'd do would be like, it's time to pray. And when we got to Lake Superior at midnight, we were like, it's time to pray. I mean, we were just really, I mean, it, it was a wonderful experience. I had a lot of fun. And if you had to describe your feelings about God during the first, those first two weeks, what, what would you, how would you describe that? He was incredibly real. I, I felt like he was there. That was the only way I could describe it, is that he was really there for me. After two weeks, Arden and her five new friends came in from the woods to rejoin the rest of the camp. My friends suddenly changed, like who I thought they were. They, they suddenly became different and I don't think I think it was just that I hadn't seen them with other people besides our group you know and they were they would it, it all became you know there was the popular one and and then there was like the really helpful one and there was the boy chaser I mean it was just like and I I don't I didn't know how to handle that I wasn't I was still hoping to have that intimate friendship among the five of us and I I, I thought I was going to die you know I just couldn't take it and and <clears throat> and then I sort of dropped under my spiritual low. And so I started having trouble praying, like I didn't want to pray, and I was and I was starting to go, well, you know, what's up with this? What what is real if if I can't even when I feel like God's there and then I suddenly feel like he's not, where is he this whole time? You know? So that's when I really started to question, you know, and, and I and I I had all these doubts and I felt like God wasn't anywhere near me at all and he didn't care. One of the traditions in Christianity is that great faith often comes only after great doubt. The New Testament is filled with one story after another like this. Even Jesus grapples with his conscience in the desert before he begins his ministry. He prays again in Gethsemane. And listening to Arden, I begin to wonder if all new believers have to go through that trial in the desert themselves, if they're going to arrive at a mature faith. This is what Dan and a number of the parents believe will keep Christianity as part of these teenagers' lives as they grow older but it is enormously difficult to go through this kind of doubt. It makes Arden unhappy. She says she does not want another big spiritual moment, feeling close to God like she had in the woods. I don't trust that anymore. I don't trust, you know, just your emotions and where they may take you. 
And at the same time, she knows that without a pure leap of faith, she's nowhere. That's the thing that worries me the most is that, you know, I, I may never, like, find what I'm looking for. I may never find out who God is. And that that worries me. Like, I sometimes I think, oh, my gosh, you know, because I don't know where I would be. I guess, I don't know. I'd have to start all over again. Abraham, our father, answered his Hineni when the Lord commanded him to offer up his son. He took the wood and fire and journeyed to Moriah, and there he built an altar to complete what he'd begun. Pastor Kenny actually broke into song during his sermon on Thursday. The subject of the sermon was how the Lord calls certain people to serve him, and how, when he does, they usually do not want to go. We hear the story of Abraham being called to slay Isaac, of Moses being ordered to go to Pharaoh. Kenny talks from the heart about the moment he felt he was called to preach. And then he asks all of us to look into our own hearts. Has God been speaking to us during our week in West Virginia? Maybe God is speaking to you that you want to be a missionary. Now, over here under my Bible, I've got a a legal pad. And if you think that God is calling you to serve him, maybe that's what God wants you to do. I'm just going to leave this pad out here, and and I want you to just come put your name on it. I'm not going to sell your name to any list. I'm not going to turn it into Mission of the World. This is between, I think you need to do that. Uh, You need to make that commitment. If God is calling you. After the service ends, a few people mill around. The Chicago teenagers head off to the cabins, except for Joel, who walks over to the legal pad, picks it up, and writes his name. Yeah, sure. I catch up with him a few minutes later. So I saw what you just did. Yeah, it's on the list. It was, for me, to me, it's the most powerful sermon I've ever heard. Joel tells me he now knows what he wants to do with his life. Although parts of his faith clearly still chafe at him, although he's always saying how hard it is for him to talk to people, although he still has a long way to go before he's actually at ease in the bigger, secular world, he's the one member of the youth group who decided that he wants to head out into that world as a missionary, teaching in another country. When Kenny was praying, just like, man, what have you been thinking all these years? You know? No, I'm not going to be a professional soccer player. That's totally out now. Is that what you thought up until that point? Yeah, it is. Given how restrictive... I hope you don't take this the wrong way, but given how restrictive your family is, I can see why you might jump at a chance to go overseas and get away. Yeah, I mean, some of the rules I can understand why I accept it because it's, like, a good idea. But, I don't know, it's, it is getting kind of restrictive now that I'm getting older. Act 7. Made to stumble because of me. All week, I kept running into those guys who wanted to be on the radio, Matt and Eric. And on the last morning in West Virginia, I see Eric out by his car. The night before, he had driven some kids from his VBS back home after dinner. Eric's group was running this huge vacation Bible school in a place called Windmill Park in a tough section of Fairmont, West Virginia. Eric had gotten close to a lot of the kids. Yeah, it was really hard last night, taking them home. 
some car was coming too close and they're like, it's a drive-by and they're ducking under and they were scared. And one of the kids left his bike at the park and he was all afraid that it was stolen and stuff like that. And while we're pulling in there, they're like, keep your head low because there's bullets around here and stuff like that. It's just really hard to think of these little first through fourth graders like having to deal with this stuff every day. And we gave out prizes on our last day and the kid had to run home so that he could get the prizes to his house without having them taken from him. So, it's rough. I mean, that's why I think I'm almost, I was almost like kind of down on the whole idea of VBS because it's like you invest in these kids for a week, you know, and they get close and, you know, and relationships are built and then it's like cut off. So I just felt like emotionally it was just too hard on them. And last night I was really struggling with that whole idea. Earlier in the week, we were joking about like if you guys were going to change, and in the end, like you did see something you hadn't seen before. Oh, definitely. I mean, definitely, because that was really hard. I was very broken up by the thought of whether it's right to do these one-week VBSs and like invest in these kids just to then like leave them. At the end of their week, the Chicagoans are feeling proud of how far they've come with a vacation Bible school, with Angie and Paula and Crystal, who they invited to dinner out at the campsite on the last night. People promised to write to each other. When we asked Crystal which parts of the Bible did she think that she would be reading, now that Carol had pointed out some sections to her, she can't remember which sections Carol had said. She said she doesn't really read anything on her own. At services that last night, some kids from the East Coast get up to perform a song. They're in a band called Iris. And the song is about one of the unique burdens of being a teenager and a Christian. So hopefully, I'd like to encourage you all to, to not let it stop here, but when you go back, to, if you have friends or family that you can uh, witness to, continue to share the love of Christ with people. As for whether the Chicago kids are up to the task of actually proselytizing their non-Christian friends, they do not seem eager or ready. It's one thing to befriend strangers in another state. It's another kind of commitment to their faith to try it at home. It's a sacrifice. And on the long drive home, Joel, the future missionary, says he doesn't think it'll happen with the group. Either, either the people won't want to come, or at least, as far as I'm concerned, I'm, you know, I'm too nervous to ask him. And I and I already and I already and I also would 
in the case of most of my non-Christian friends, I already know what their answer would be. They they don't they they they're fine with me being Christian. I mean, but they 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 don't have any interest in it themselves, and at least not at this point. In the four months since the trip, only one member of the group has brought a non-Christian friend to youth group. As her contact with Crystal and Paula and Angie, an adult leader wrote a letter to Angie and sent a Bible that they all signed. There hasn't been a lot more. But maybe this lack of proselytizing energy is not such a bad thing. If Dan is going to stick to his goal from the trip, helping the kids examine what they believe, the real tests of faith for most people are not usually in interactions with people hundreds of miles away or with people they're trying to convert. Real tests of faith happen with the people closest to you, with parents and friends. It was a bunch of Christians who made Arden question her faith. It's a desire to kiss a nice Christian girl that made Joel question his. Those questions are likely to continue. Well, our program was produced and reported today by Susan Burton and myself, with help from Alex Bloomberg, Nancy Updike, Bruce Chevney, Sterling Kine, and Todd Bachman. Julie Snyder was our editor on the story. Special thanks today to Doug Mallow, to Pastor Kenny Robinson, to Mission on the World, to Nora Moreno, and to Jane Fitzgerald. A special thanks to Dan Adamson and the Covenant Youth Group, who so generously allowed Susan and I to come along with him on this trip. A special shout-out to Chris, Karen, Anna, Dave, and Laura. To buy a cassette of this or any of our programs, call us here at WBEZ in Chicago, 312-832-3380. And if you're still somehow mulling over that perfect Christmas gift, even today, our double CD, Lies, Sissies, and Fiascos, The Best of This American Life, is available at our website, www.thislife.org. At the site, you can also listen to our program for free and listen to more music from the Christian rock band Iris. Thanks to Elizabeth Meister, who runs the site. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Funding for our program has been provided by Amazon.com. The books of music on This American Life are available at Amazon.com. Books, CDs, videos, DVDs, auctions, toys, electronics, software, Z-shops, and home improvement online at Amazon.com. Other funding comes from the Capital Group Companies, investing for individuals and institutions throughout the world, and sponsor of the American Funds Group of Mutual Funds, and the Ford Foundation, a resource for innovative people and institutions worldwide. And from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the listeners of WBEZ Chicago, WBEZ Management Oversight by Tori Malatia, who taunts me, taunts me all the time. Oh, come on. You know you want it. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of this American life. And I'm like, no, I don't. <laughs> R.I. Public Radio International.